Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of February 2023. I am one of your co-ghosts, Ash Darrow, joined as always by the one, the only, the haunting, John, aka the Liquid Guy. How's it going, John? I am so excited. Can't wait. It's going to be chef's kiss. Love it. <laughs> but uh, we are not alone in the crypt today. We are joined by Alexander Herbert, author of Fear Before the Fall, horror films in the late Soviet Union. How is it going, Alexander? It's going pretty good. It's pretty cold. I'm I'm uh, here out of Rhode Island, so I'm my fingertips are frozen, but the rest of my body is all right. We're good to go. <laughs> the vital podcasting yeah. organs are still intact, so we're fine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Warm, warmed by the power of of communism, um, maybe <laughs> maybe you can start off um, start us off by just kind of introducing yourself. Maybe explain a little bit about what you do. Uh, fear a little bit of, about fear before the fall, and um, where people can find you and your work and support what you do. Okay, uh, there's a lot of things there uh, that I'll try to get to. So yeah, my name is Alex. I am a Technically still a PhD candidate, although I'm defending in March. And so uh, I guess I'll be a PhD in the history of the late Soviet Union and oh, modern yeah. Europe, particularly environmental history is what I do. Um, although, as you can tell by this book, I also like to explore topics that are uh, interesting to me on a personal level, such as horror and such as my previous book, which was on punk rock in Russia in the Soviet Union. Um, I also, I, you know, I play drums. I run a community library out of Providence, Rhode Island. It's called Red Ink Community Library, R-E-D-I-N-K. Uh, some people think that it's a tattoo shop, but it's not. It's a, it's, a, it's a lending library. You can go in and you can borrow books. And we have a massive collection of, of uh, old Soviet uh, publications uh, and newer stuff. And we also host shows there and you know all the the communist party club the dsa the psl all of them organize use red ink as a space so look that up if you can we're on twitter and on instagram and everywhere and if you play music or if you want to do a book talk or whatever hit us up to do it in providence um i actually so to plug myself i have an instagram which i'm most active on uh it's at punks around p-u-n-k-s-a-r-o-u-n-d um and that's just by default i had a twitter for a little bit uh but i i kept getting in trouble for trolling people in my <laughs> uh my, my local political scene and so like for mental health purposes i had to drop it for a little bit but i just recently got twitter back um and so i don't really have all that many followers, but if your listeners want to follow me, it's Alex T. Herbert, all one word. So it looks like Alex Thurbert, but <laughs> that's okay. You can follow me anyway. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, Fear Before the Fall. Um, this book very much arose out of my own personal love for horror movies in general. I mean, and this, and like that goes back to my childhood probably when I was too young to even watch horror movies. Um, and uh, having been done some work in the Russian uh, film 
and photography archive for my dissertation. Uh, and then also the pandemic, which like, you know, kept all of us at home for ridiculous amounts of time. Uh, and, you know, really, I guess estranged us from the work that we were supposed to be doing. And so I, I sort of endeavored on this small project during that period, although the, the ideas for it and even some of the chapters were already written before the pandemic as well. Hell yeah. Uh, and and for, you, for you listeners out there, if you didn't know, uh, uh, John and I wrote an official endorsement that's on the back cover of this book. So this is this book has the honor of being the first horror vanguard approved piece of, of text, which is, is, I mean, like, thank you so much for inviting us to do that, because this has been one of the coolest things we've gotten to do out of the show. Hell yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, as we were saying earlier, you know, uh, horror vanguard is one of my favorite podcasts as a leftist you know regardless of which side of the left you you swing mm -hmm. um you know there there are a lot of horror themed podcasts out there and they they tend to focus more on like cinematography the history of horror itself mm -hmm. and all that stuff which is great and i love it but you know rarely do you get this uh deeper dive into the um the i guess the theory, the philosophy, the psychology of horror um, as a genre. So, yes, it was, I was honored myself to have you all say something <laughs> about the book. And just and just for the record, the book, the book is not only just an incredible bit of like cultural history and 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 a kind of really good introduction to an area of horror cinema that probably that almost certainly doesn't get talked about enough, but it's actually a really cool way of thinking about this particular kind of instance of sort of marxist history right how do we how do we tell the story of the stories of the late soviet union so i think like not only is it just a great uh kind of introductory book on a certain section of film history that pe people almost certainly don't know enough about but it's this it raises so many kind of really interesting kind of like history uh historiography questions right how do we what what's the role and function and political importance of cultural history so like a link to the book is going to be in the show notes please do check it out uh and support some of the great work that uh alex is doing as well as some of the other cool titles that are coming out of, uh, out of zero books as well yeah i got i gotta say like i uh yeah I, I, oh go on go on go, oh, on. go ahead I, I i mean i just wanted to say uh thank you the, the i mean the the idea of trying to relate culture to what's going on at the end of the Soviet Union also is a is a project of the book on Russian punk too. Because when you know when I started studying uh, Soviet history, it was you know like ten years ago when I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I grew up in the punk scene. I grew up watching horror movies, and in the way that Soviet history or Russian history is taught in you know mostly liberal academia is is a way uh is such that russia and the soviet union seems so distant from us and seems mm -hmm. so different from us uh and it wasn't until i lived in russia where i started like meeting people who listened to punk who not only knew like the punk bands that i grew up with but then they had their own bands there and the same thing applied to horror and so for me it was sort of this realization that like holy shit the soviet union in terms of culture like knew what was going on here uh 
and and replicated it in certain ways, but also in idiosyncratic ways. So I I've I've always been interested in kind of taking these forms of culture, relating them to uh, the Soviet Union as a way of getting non-experts, you know, people who are just broadly interested in communist history or Soviet history, interested in the the history of the country more broadly, if that makes sense. No, completely. And like, let's, oh, yeah. let's be like, let's be like as, as direct as possible, right? Which is to say that the way that the history of the Soviet Union specifically is taught in, in like Western liberal academia is thinly veiled anti-communism, right? That's the, that's, right. that's the purpose of it, I would argue, on a very widespread level. And I think it's an incredibly important thing to do to have accessible ways into not just the history of cultural exchange that happened between... Uh, you know, to, to put it crude, crudely, the capitalist West and, and the Soviet uh, republics, but also the ways in which there was this incredible kind of cultural potential that existed all the way throughout the history of the Soviet Union, from Soviet realism all the way up to, like, the really interesting film history of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, there's there's so much about this book that I really appreciate, like... I, I think I think it's like it, it does two things that I think are I mean it does so much that I think is really important but two of the things that were like highlights to me or I think that especially on the left we tend to for very obvious reasons over focalize the early history of the USSR and and less yeah. so the later history before Pizza Hut and the fall of the USSR we tend to we tend to turn a blind eye towards that <laughs> and the fact that this book really just openly grapples with that as like not as a as a distinct and separate phase, but as part of this continuing stream of history, I really appreciate that. And I also preach, uh, yeah, oh, go on. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm not say, <laughs> the, the other thing I was gonna say is I really appreciate how even handed the book is, you know, approaching both the, the kind of political and social missteps and failures of, of the Soviet union, as well as external pressures from the quote unquote capitalist West, and it ha you have just a, a very even-handed approach to kind of what was going on in, in terms of culture throughout the history of the USSR that, that helps lead us up to the ultimate fall of the Soviet Union. That's actually really nice to hear because sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, it's difficult to, to keep that even-handedness. Oh, yeah. And like, uh, you know, I, I'm always, as a historian, of the late Soviet Union in particular, um, I'm always trying to kind of combat the historiographical dead weight mm -hmm. of Stalinism. Um, there's so much of uh, Western historiography of the Soviet Union, as you said, has been focused on on the legacies of Stalinism or or what happened under Stalin, where, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, we could put Khrushchev aside for a <laughs> minute, but like during the Brezhnev years, there's this amazing cultural uh, rebirth in the Soviet Union that happens, um, in which, you know, is the first chap the first chapter of this book actually is, is during, um, uh, Brezhnev's leadership, um, and bringing attention to that. And, and as, as, uh, one of you said, as I think Ash said, um, seeing the cultural potential in the Soviet Union at that time, I think, uh, is hugely important, especially for us going forward. Um, and like, you know, to, to just put all my cards <laughs> on the table here, I, I am by no means, um, uh, do I 
do I consider myself mm -hmm. a Stalinist? Uh, I do, I, you know, I do see certain uh, reasons. I understand certain choices that were made under under Stalin, um, uh, but I don't consider myself to be a Stalinist. I am a mm -hmm. Marxist-Leninist. That's that's a member of the Communist Party of the United States, um, and. Still, I think you can kind of view Soviet history um, in in terms of these like segmented parts. And so, you know, Stalinism is its own its own kind of world. And then there's post-Stalinism, there's Khrushchev, there's Brezhnev. And I do like to see these periods in terms of the people who are, uh, I guess, officially the head of the party. Um, and I do think that it's very telling that, you know, this book starts during Brezhnev's period and it ends with Gorbachev and Pizza Hut. Although I don't think I mentioned Pizza Hut. <laughs> and that Pizza Hut commercial, just, just, for, just to be clear here, that Pizza Hut commercial came out after a collapse had already happened. And so, you know, a lot of internet left look at it like, look at Gorbachev selling out communism, but it's like communism was already dead at this point. I mean, it was already, it was already out. Uh, he was just, you know, Eating pizza. Leave the guy alone. He's dead now. I guess <laughs> whatever. I think. I think though, you're completely right. There's often, often if we're if we're talking about if we're talking about the Soviet Union in um, uh, in kind of modern discourse, I often feel like conversations get trapped in Stalinism, right? And yeah. and it be, it becomes very reductive very quickly. And I think it's enormously valuable to have ways of kind of talking about Soviet history that kind of get us out of the trap of going boiling the complexities of historiography down to the question of like of the stalin issue you know and you know that that's 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 always been a problem i think for the for the internet left uh has been constantly tripping over uh you know the figure of stalin and like i think what you've done is provide a really compelling cultural history that actually gives us a way of thinking about these things in new terms and I think this is a really good point of kind of jumping into what we're going to talk about today. Um, talking about talking about uh, V from nineteen V from nineteen sixty eight, which is it's based on a Gogol short story, uh, but of the same oh, yeah. name. And I am so excited! <laughs> I am I am positively filled with glee to get my dear friend Ash to explain. Uh, to me, to Alex, to everybody listening, uh, what V from 1968 is about. This is the story of a witch. Dear listener, answer me with honesty. Do you believe in a witch's curse? Sit with this question for a moment before answering. I'm less interested in what your rationalized, cybernetic mind has to say about my inquiry. I want to know what your body believes about witches, curses, and demons. Tell me, if a witch levied a curse against you, against the tent and pole of your flesh, would a shiver creep down your spine? Would a tear cross your eye? Or would it be nothing more than a passing rationalized dread? Something uploaded into an empirical knowing that recodes enchantment as something programmatic? A logic stream of, A, I am cursed, B, therefore I must purchase a new crystal and cleansing witch kit from Sephora. Roland Barthes and his camera Lucida remarked, The realists, of whom I am one, do not take the photograph for a copy of reality, 
but for an emanation of a past reality, a magic, not an art. We see this magic in reverse. Light strikes the emulsion side of a photographic frame, chemistry fixes the image, editing assembles the final picture. The real magic comes in recognizing that we are a photographic frame. Our belief is the emulsion that catches the light, and the material structures of our society are the chemistry that fixes belief images into our bodies. Alchemy pure and simple. The truth within the truth. Factually as an endless series of inversions. Capitalism has converted belief into a series of appearances. The only facts are the facts that can be verified by mutual observation. A slowly building fractal of sharp edges cuts into our bodies. You can't sell experience, but you can sell appearance, and, as such, we focalize obscurantist details over temporal communion. David Levi Strauss wrote, This attraction to details, stripped of auras and intimacies, signaled a shift to a blasphemous belief in the thing itself. An endless outward race to a greater fidelity is an attempt to hold the thing itself, to fix a real that does not exist. The true driver of escapism is not found in the moving image, but in attempts to halt the flow of the real. If your body cannot believe in the mysteries that linger in shadows, can it believe in those which revel in light? Even if your body has not had empirical contact, it can still have belief. For blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. In the philosophy of misery, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon wrote that we are forced to proceed like a materialist, that is by observation and experience, and to conclude in the language of the believer, because there is no other. Out of my window, I watch as a cardinal sits on a branch while I write this. Is it merely a biomechanical automata following chemical urges, or is it a greater eminence, an aura sent by something beyond, which travels by means mechanical? Is there still enough left in me to know the touch of a witch should I be lucky enough to encounter an aura of belief so raw? Hold a night's visual with us as we discuss V. Yes. All right. That wraps up the episode then. I think we... Woo! <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I'm I'm, I'm sorry. Thank a you. banger, a banger. Even even by your extremely high standards, that was no, a thank you. Banger, definitely a banger. Good good job. Oh hell yeah, I had fun um, writing that one. Are you sure you didn't write this book? <laughs> there were so many movies in this book that I haven't seen. I have like a list of films to watch now. Yeah, don't treat them all equally. Some of them, you know, I did the viewing. <laughs> watch it yourself i i mean you know like we, we'll get into v in a minute but in general these films in the 90s in particular the the technology that was used to make them and just the the crude uh uh amateur knowledge of what went into horror as a film genre is something that is so evident in some of these mm -hmm. movies that like um that that you know if you're in film school to be a horror director it's almost probably good to watch these films just so that you see how not to uh do certain things so that, that's actually something you know, do uh certain th this is something that i find to be really interesting too because i'm a huge fan of like um it, so I, I recently uh gave an introduction to a 35 millimeter screening of the ring at the quad theater in new york and 
part of that introduction, I, I was talking about the kind of like VHS and early digital cinema was like this eruption of proletarian art. You know, people with no money, no time, no talent mm. could now make feature length films and try and get them distributed. And I'd be really interesting to see the kind of like temporal equivalent of 90s, you know, like S Soviet cinema to see like just on a technical level, like how much it looks like a, a shot on VHS film from Wisconsin. Yeah, I mean, a, a really great example of what I'm saying is is uh, the film uh, Vampire mm -hmm. Family uh, from 1990. And, and, and that is, again, based on an Alexei Tolstoy short story that is a horrifying vampire tale um, from like post-Napoleonic Europe. Uh, and the story itself kind of uh, uh, speaks for itself. It's a really amazing story, but you see a lot of like uh, poor choices <laughs> in directing um, shots and stuff that like, you know, I, it makes up for itself in the story. The story is good. Uh, and if you have the patience to, to watch it, then I highly recommend it. But, you know, we're doing the right thing by talking about V today, which I think is the, is the true uh, anomaly of this book. Well, maybe maybe we can start there. Maybe, Alex, would you mind kind of like just fleshing out a little bit of the context for us? Like, how does V fit into the context of Soviet cinema in the late 60s, right? Where 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 is where is Soviet cinema at uh, particularly horror. Where where is that at in like the late sixties, going into the early seventies? What's 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 the broader kind of framework we can think about this through? Yeah, I can I can try to give a brief overview of that. Um, so in the in the book in the introduction, I, I have a brief description of of what's going on with uh, film in general in the Soviet Union, and and as most of your listeners can probably imagine, it's it's nationalized. Uh, the major film studios emerge, Mosfilm, Lenfilm, etc. Stalin uh, advocates that each republic have its own film studio uh, and that they be given uh, equal equal attention and exposure. Um, so there is a there there is a film in this that is released from a Uzbek film studio. There's another one that's released from a Belarusian film studio, etc. Uh, but in general. The Soviet Union in the early years and throughout Stalinism does not believe in the cultural, the social relativ relativity of horror at all. Um, you can imagine as a, as a society that is so, uh, uh, that is promoting socialist realism to such an extent as, as mid-Stalinism is, you can imagine that, you know, like vampires and werewolves and stuff don't really... Um, conform to, to what it's trying to promote. That is a, a, a worker's uh, state. Uh, so, you know, for example, in, I have a quote in the book in 1970, the, the um, Kino Slovar, which is the, the, the uh, film dictionary, defines horror as leading away from the real problems of reality, generating moods of hopelessness and fear, contributing to the emergence of cruelty. And so the Soviet film industry uh, uh, does not endorse horror whatsoever. Um, they see it as bourgeois, mm -hmm. as decadent, uh, and as promoting um, ethics that are contrary to, to good communist behavior. Um, and yet, 
and that that definition is from 1970 and yet in 1967 68 you get the film v uh which you know it it definitely stands out and i'm i'm not even sure that um the directors Kropachev and yershov and also alexander petushko who did who worked behind the scenes would even consider it mm -hmm. to be horror as much as they would consider it to be fantasy uh, and fairy tale. So by the 1960s, after, uh, after the death of Stalin and this whole de-Stalinization period, along with de-Stalinization is a very small but subtle opening up of the strict socialist realist censorships that were placed on film. It's not a total opening, you know, horror films don't become the new genre, um, the new favorite genre, but, you know, more directors are given opportunities to, to try their hand. For example, uh, Kropachev and Yershov are two new directors, brand new, they're young, uh, but they're still under the supervision of some, some senior directors. Um, and they generate a script for this film V, which is based on Gogol's short story. And the original script that they have um, is rejected. It's rejected because it's uh, the the censor saw it as too sexualizing. Um, there's there's supposed to be a metaphor drawn between. Uh, I don't know if the two of you have watched the film. I'm sure you have, but um, the father of the witch mm -hmm. is supposed to be some kind of like sexual mm -hmm. yep. uh, figure. You know, it's supposed to be implied that he was molesting his daughter, and that's that's what turned her to witchcraft. They completely get that out of the script. They don't want that at all, and nor do they want the sexual tension between uh, Homa, who is the main character, and the witch as well. So if you could tell, you know, there's potential for a sort of uh, sexual tension relationship bet between the two of them in the film, but it's completely erased. You don't really get that sense. But in the original script, it was there. Um, what you do have, though, are these uh, not so subtle shots of religious mm -hmm. imagery. Yeah. You know, there's there's even close ups of an icon of Jesus's face looking contemptuously at, at Homa um, and all of these sort of new elements of Soviet cinema that that didn't exist before under the guise. The reason that they could get away with it was because they they branded the film as fairy tale and fantasy. And, and they had Alexander Petushko, who is sort of considered the Walt Disney of the Soviet Union. He's the guy that created all of these like beautiful uh, uh, fairy tale films in the Soviet Union, like Ilya Murmitz, uh, the, the, the story of Tsar Sultan, for example, uh, Ruslan and Ludmila. He did all the set designs for these, these fantastical, super, super colorful Soviet uh, fantasy and fairy tale films, and he's recruited to do this film. So it, you can definitely see the his influence in in the set designs and the colors that are used. It's very very vivid um, sets, yeah, very I mean, colorful. The special effects um, work, especially in like the last yeah. fifteen twenty minutes of this film, is genuinely incredible. Right, um, and. That's Petrushko's work. I mean, the the moving coffin, yeah, for it's example. It's it's genuinely um, amazing. If you think about, mm -hmm. like, just just the, the the history that you put out, right? You know, and we don't necessarily talk about this enough on the show, which is like uh, Soviet Soviet uh, filmmakers were among the first kind of film theorists, 
you know, uh, Ziga Vertov yes. and, so, yep. and so many others. Like there was a, there was a cinema school. There was a film school <clears throat> in, in, uh, uh, in, in Russia very early on post-revolution. Like, so there, there is this incredible interest in what cinema can do. And I think what you're saying chimes really, uh, kind of like fascinatingly with the, um, Lukash block debate over expressionism, right? Horror is horror. Like expressionism was seen as kind of barbaric, something that was decadent, something that was shattering the representational totality of art, right? Uh, this is Lukash's point about realism versus expressionism. Um, and I think it's super interesting that horror gets lumped in with this idea of something that is like fractures the social totality that art is supposed to represent. But fairy stories don't do that. And they're okay because that's historical. I think that's it. That's a kind of fun way of solving the problem, as it were, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that, I mean, I, I kind of glossed over that, but it's a good point to mention that the Soviet Union in the in the late 20s and early 30s are at the forefront of of uh, film theory with, like you mentioned, uh, Vertov, there's people like Sergei Eisenstein, uh, Protozanov and Kuleshov, for example, people who are making amazing films and utilizing the lens as, uh, uh, as a new expressive form of art um, that you know, especially with Eisenstein, you get like these these artistic expressions like montage, for example. But it's always, especially with like October or even uh, uh, Ivan the Terrible, it's within this like realistic lens mm, still, yeah. you know. And as you said, it's historically based. It's 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 literally serving as a form of propaganda for people. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a positive way that you can produce films from the state film industry that you then show to the people and they come out of the theater having learned something and having uh, more faith and belief in the party and in the purpose of what the Soviet Union is trying to do. Uh, and fantasy, as you said, fantasy uh, and fairy tales by the late 50s in the 60s they're doing the same thing a lot of them are are hearkening back to this idealized time of of uh of russian and siberian history uh of celebrating the old heroes of ancient rus uh and also you know through through rendering gogol's short story into a film you know also glorifying these rush these writers of russia in i guess ukraine's past of the Soviet Union's past. I think it's so interesting you bring this up. I mean, I was just thinking about Mark Stevens' book, Splatter Capital. There's a section mm -hmm. of that talking about Eisenstein's first feature film, Strike, as a, as a horror right. film, right? Because of its use of montage, its use of, like, the, the effects of violence upon the body. Like, it's easily readable as a horror film and not just as this kind of, like, didactic uh, piece of propaganda. Um, and like, okay, I mean, just to, just to, to kind of like take this thing out of the term propaganda, because I think you're completely right. Huge amounts of contemporary American cinema are propagandistic, right? Vastly. Like the, Looking the, at you, the US MCM. Department of Defense consults on Marvel movies, right? Yeah. Like propaganda, like <laughs> uh, Paw Patrol, <laughs> Paw Patrol, mm -hmm. Paw Patrol. Nothing to um, see here, folks. Just a bunch of dogs <laughs> being cute. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the. Let's talk about Gogol then. Let's talk about this as an adaptation because in some ways Gogol is kind of an odd choice for like 
Soviet cinema to go to. Like it's it's proto surrealism in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gogol's writing. Yeah. It's 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 not realist in, in the cl- kind of classic nineteenth century yeah. sense of the term. Um, it's Gogol himself was not particularly didn't have particularly you know communist friendly politics. What do you both think about this as an adaptation? Well, I... <laughs> I'll let Ash go first. <clears throat> I was gonna say I think it's a I think it's a fascinating choice to pick Gogol. You know, like. I always think of the nose when when I think of Gogol. Like he's just you're absolutely right. Proto surrealism, a very interesting choice, but I think it kind of works too because like, <clears throat> like I've I've seen I wouldn't say a lot, but a fair number of like early mid Soviet folkloric films. I'm thinking of like Father Frost and Sampo, aka The Day the Earth Froze, um, and like. I see this, I mean, like, I'm sure this, maybe this isn't intended, um, but, like, there's a strong surrealist tone in a lot of these folk horror stories. You know, like, especially, like, when you kind of contrast it to, like, quote-unquote Western fantasy, right? The stuff coming out of Hollywood in the United States. You know, like, uh, giant, giant monsters made by science, chemistry gone awry. And then you look at these, like, you know, Soviet or Soviet joint project folk films. And it's very much like epic tales of fantasy and witchcraft and magic and, and you know, folkloric traditions. And I kind of think that Gogol fits into that in a way that feels kind of natural if you look at it from, from that angle. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, and, and some, of, some of what you said, I hadn't really quite thought um about in those terms i you know for for my perspective i think that there's a few reasons why gogol that why they go to gogol for the first reason is you know the story is just an amazing story um and 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 it's one in which the author uh that is gogol is is acting as a Mm -hmm. anthropologist in a sense oh yeah i mean the the opening line of the story as well as the 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 movie itself is v a colossal creation of the imagination of simple folk the tale itself is a purely popular legend and i tell it without change in all its simplicity exactly how i heard it told to me so he's even he's distancing himself from the story to begin with they say this is my story i'm just reporting to you the reader uh, about what's going on about what these people in ukraine um uh, implying Cossacks, mm-hmm. uh, which you see a lot of in the in the movie itself, uh, what they believe and what they see. Um, that's one aspect of it. And and another part, uh, it's funny because a few months ago I was asked to do a introduction of this film for a um, Ukrainian oh, film cool. series that's going on in in uh, right. in Switzerland. And it and it was great, but they the 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 host really wanted to push me to frame this ah. movie within the war that's going mm, on right that's, now. That's something. Oh, go on, go on, go on. And no, no, no. Well, I was ahead. just gonna say really quickly that that's that's uh, the Ukrainian context was something I definitely not- noticed a bit more this time, this viewing than in previous viewings of V. Yeah, my for for, I mean, in my mind. Um, when go like because you know ukrainians because gogol is born in what is present day ukraine they claim him as as a national uh mm-hmm. literary figure and they have every right to and i you know that's fine but as a historian 
you know, I see Gogol less as a Ukrainian, not as a Russian, but as an imperial citizen, mm -hmm. as a as a citizen of the empire, as much as uh, the directors of V were not Russian directors, they were Soviet citizens. Mm -hmm. They were citizens of the Soviet state. Um, and try to separate that from these national affinities because then you just go down a, a rabbit hole of trying to figure out whether Borsh is Ukrainian <laughs> or Russian, which is irrelevant. Um, and so what Gogol did as an imperial citizen, especially in his uh, St. Petersburg tales, is to just point out the absurdity of everyday imperial life. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the point of the yeah. nose, right? Um, it's to, it's to ridicule the bureaucracy itself. Um, and I, and I think that in that, in this story, he is doing that as well. He's not ridiculing the bureaucracy, but he's ridiculing, uh, supposedly learn, learned people, right? Homa and his friends come from the seminary where they're studying theology, philosophy, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, ethics right and they they all claim oh, yeah. that... we, we will get into we'll get into those <laughs> those three there's lots to talk about there <laughs> yeah I, I mean and 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 at coming from the seminary right they're they're set off in the beginning of the story they're on break mm -hmm. and these you know the the three of them which are meant to represent the three major uh realms of of intellectual inquiry go out and the story ends up following the fate of the philosopher. And it's the philosopher because that's the person that claims to know more than anyone else and can even refute uh, everything and anything derived from the Bible based on new philosophy that's developing in the early 19th century. Um, the the, the uh, uh, confidence of the philosopher is what I think Gogol is critiquing here. I... So I think V V is a good story to 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 uh, turn into a film. I think for that reason, I I really 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 enjoy, and we're definitely going to get into this. But I love how much this movie is just taking the piss with Homa's character. Like I I love <laughs> that because like as like I mean like I, I'm an academic. I, I went to grad school, right? Like I'm you know, how, however you want to slice this, like in, in some certain respect, what John and I do here is philosophy and theorizing and public intellectual work. And like, just to, just to see a movie that like show, shows our field, no respect. It was just so refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I, was, I was like, all, all of this is correct. Spring break has been spring break since the very beginning. Hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, uh, I love, Homa's character, both in in the the story itself, but then also in the film adaptation, uh, uh, the actor is you know the facial expressions and everything are are so like, good. Like slightly off topic here, but can we also just take a second to point out that there are some excellent mustaches in this film? <laughs> oh yeah, it has to be just yeah. I, that and the. Uh, Imperative. The, <laughs> you can't depict the Cossacks unless you got that. Yeah, that like every on single right? one of the dudes in this is just rocking some incredible facial hair. <laughs> and the, the one, the one, the one Cossack that shows up when uh, Homa is drunk, and he blocks all three of the doorways. His like, his, yeah. his devil lock. His his like misfits haircut that starts from like the back left corner of his head and swoops forward. 
I, I don't know if that's like a, a historically appropriate haircut or that was just a quirk of that actor, but that is like one of the most bold hairstyles I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that that is a specifically a Ukrainian uh, traditional style of haircut uh, called the oscillates, which is um, sort of this like shaven bun at the top almost. Um, but again, like... Uh, genius in terms of filming because you don't nobody in that film needs to say that they're mm-hmm. Ukrainian or that they're Cossack. You just see it. You know, you see the culture there and you get it right automatically if you're living in the Soviet Union mm-hmm. at the time, no matter where you are. If you're watching the film from Uzbekistan, you instantly recognize like, all right, I know where yeah, this yeah, is taking yeah. place now. I think I think we should also as we, we wrap up the formalism zone, we should also just take a minute to talk about in a bit more detail the cinematography and practical effects in this because i am i again i am i i i feel like i'm i'm in danger of sounding coming off like hyperbolic but like the final the final 15 20 minutes are so cool it's and when you realize that this was done in 1968 what they're able to accomplish is just astonishingly good if if you would have released this film today, obviously with with like a touched up graphics or something, th- this would have been like the best A twenty four release since. Like, <laughs> just like the, I, I still remember the first time I saw this was twenty seventeen, and and the when when the hands first come up around Homa, like I I was blown away by how good that looked and, and just how real it felt like when when the vampires start crawling out of the walls and like just 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 my god that entire the third night of haunting is just perfect yeah uh alexander Petushko really was a genius of of set design and in um in effects and you know it, to a certain extent there there was a a version of V that came out in Russia, I believe in 2016, mm-hmm. a new version. And as all Russia, as all contemporary Russian films do, it's way overdone. <laughs> the graphics are like, are, you know, hundred percent CGI. You be surprised if they filmed any of this, like in a real set and not just in a, a, a green room. Um, but you can compare that with this version from 1967, 68, in which, you know, the, the, my favorite, you guys are all uh, uh, touching on, you know, these, these amazing aspects like the hand and the vampires, V itself, the monster, but there's the it's moving so, coffin. It's so cool. Um, yes. It's with, so cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the, the thing is that like, when you're watching the film, you can mm-hmm. hear the yep. machine, yep. like, moving it around and and the actress uh natalia varley who is who plays the the maiden slash witch in the film um she uh in in subsequent interviews after the film she had she actually fell off of this contraption <laughs> um during filming it because it's moving like a fast surfboard almost mm-hmm. you know it's it's literally hovering in the air and it's moving super fast um so she fell off and i believe like sprained her leg or something and they had oh, to wow. wait a few weeks to start filming again uh but yeah it's it's an amazing set uh design aspect of of the film that like you know one of the first floating coffins that and that, they also do a lot of uh you know i guess this isn't as um as innovative but the uh the the splice mm-hmm. 
the, like the the splicing the the shots to make it look like you know flames yep. go out yep. instantly or flames turn on instantly there's a lot of that and there's yep. even jump mm-hmm. scares there's a scene where a cat yeah. just jumps yes. out of the back you know and it scares so the hell out of you for a minute such a good moment <laughs> It, it just all it all reads so well too. Like the, the the scene where the witch starts riding Koma around and flying with him, it like it, it really reads like they're <laughs> yeah. flying. Like the 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 effect. It's like it's so much better than like maybe maybe Western capitalism got it right when it came to soda pop, bubblegum, and blue jeans. But we definitely screwed up when it came to overuse of CG. That has been a horrible cultural export. <laughs> Honestly. Honestly, watching this, I, was, I, I think it's George Lucas, isn't it, who gives this interview talking about how uh, Soviet cinema had so much more creative freedom than American directors did. Yep. Oh, that is Lucas. Yeah, yep. where he's like, okay, in, you know, in Russia or, you, you know, or in Ukraine, you're not allowed to, to, to kind of criticize the government. Fine. But in the Hollywood system, there's so much you can't do because people won't let you try it or won't let you spend the money. And it's like, you can just, it's so cool to watch this film and realize with how few resources it was made and with the kind of the technical skill and imaginative potential that's put on screen honestly just blows so many other films out of the water and to the point that it's like i'm we're, we're being perfectly kind of serious that like watching it today you don't feel like you're watching a historical artifact you know it holds up it still has that same kind of like yeah. emotional kind of oh, yeah. frisson to it where you go Actually, it kind of reaches out and gets you. Right. There's a, uh, uh, you know, bringing up George Lucas is really interesting. And I hadn't heard that he said that. Um, there's, um, you know, the, the conclusion of my book, it deals, it's the uh, lycanthropy of Russia and dealing with this idea of transformation in 1990, 1991. But there's this one film, uh, Fiodonia Painting Death, um, that was partially filmed in the United States. And it was one of the first collaborative um, films by a Soviet director uh, with financing from an American mm-hmm. company. Um, and one of the things that the director complains about a lot is the amount of restrictions that were placed on him uh, for American financing to maintain that American support he had to sacrifice a lot of what he wanted to do. And so, you know, that, I guess in that film, you can see what you're talking about kind of manifest itself in more vivid ways or what George Lucas was talking about um, manifest. But yeah, in this film, I think it's absolutely true. And like, I, I think a lot of what happens, a lot of the Western assumptions when it comes to Soviet films in general is, you know, we talked about it briefly earlier, but the idea of propaganda, mm-hmm. right? Because propaganda has such a negative connotation to it, even though we all recognize that like all film is propaganda in some form yeah. or another. Um, but in the Soviet case, particularly because of the, the, the Cold War legacy, um, I think a lot of Western audiences just dismiss Soviet cinema a lot because we just assume that, you know, its only purpose was propaganda. But again, you know, a lot of it has amazingly insightful, ethic, moral, political messages to send people that I think are, are extremely valuable. Yeah, I, I, I could, oh, totally. could not agree more. Couldn't agree more. 
So I have a I have a quick question for the group before we switch from switch into the discourse zone. And that's uh, kind of building off of what you're saying, right? Like our, our encounter with Soviet cinema, especially here in the, I guess, quote unquote, West, for, for lack of a better term off the top of my head, um, it, it's pretty limited. You know, we, we not a lot of it gets gets back out to us. And so I'm interested to see what all of our first contact with V was. When was the first time everyone saw this film, heard of this film, encountered it? Mm. I'll go for I'll, I'll go first to buy everyone time. <laughs> But like for me, like um, uh, my a, a very good friend of mine used to teach in Russia, and and is a huge fan of like sword and sorcery and just kind of like you know broadly speaking Eastern European slash Russian folkloric stuff, and like they're the one who turned me on to Golgol and like a bunch of other things, but also V. And when I saw this movie, like. I, I watch this thing like it's like a winter film for me. I watch it once a winter now, and it's it's become one of my like go to favorites. I watch it every Halloween. Oh hell yeah! Damn, <laughs> where? <laughs> uh, my I my my first exposure to it, I it was when I started studying Russian as mm -hmm. a language. You know, all of the the Moss film and Len film movies are online for free. Oh yeah, now yeah. because you know they were. Well, they were national film studios and nobody claimed copyright over a lot of the films when the Soviet Union collapsed. And so I think it was just, I really got into uh, Petushko films and fairy mm -hmm. tales. And I was watching, you know, all the films that I mentioned earlier, Ruslan, Ludmila, Ilya Mormitz, all of those. And I just came across this one and I was like, oh, this looks interesting. And I watched it and I was like, holy shit. Wow. You know, yeah. like it was, it, I didn't, I knew nothing about it before I watched it. I just, it was a part of Petushko's uh, discography and I, I watched it and I was like, whoa, what did I just watch? I need to watch that again. <laughs> so you know? I first, I first encountered, uh, okay. So, uh, le last year I made a, I made a very long video about Kentucky Route Zero, uh, which is like a weird mm -hmm. Great uh, video. point and click adventure game. Um, and there's a section in that game which is directly uh, inspired by Gogol's novel Dead Souls, um, which has got what mm -hmm. got me into Gogol. But like, um, I didn't I didn't watch this until prepping for this episode, uh, so I am I am coming to it like for the very very first time, which is maybe hell yeah, my, maybe why my reactions is just like this is so cool. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I envy, I, I envy you. I wish I were at that that new, fresh fresh stage of, of viewership. We, now I'm, you know, people are asking me to do events about this book and stuff like that, and I'm, I'm kind of hesitant to do it because I don't want to watch the same <laughs> film times yeah. in a row to talk to people about it, you know. Uh, but yeah, you know, I could change it up a little bit, I guess. Who knows. Yeah, my, my only other thought about that is like, you know, like listeners of this show, we, we talk a lot about like movies that are Ash movies and movies that are John movies. And I think I think that V is like a perfect 50-50 balance of of an, of an Ash yeah, and a John yeah, there, movie. There is definitely a cinema Venn diagram. And I think pretty much everything we've talked about yep. maps into that Venn diagram somewhere. Um, and this mm -hmm. one is right in that sweet spot between the two. Yeah, a, a bunch of a bunch of weird religious stuff happens to to a man and a witch deep in the countryside. Like, oh, 
yeah. It has everything. <laughs> what more, does, more can you ask for? It's got literary precedent, religious imagery, witches and the paranormal. It's got everything. Vampires, ghouls, everything. Yeah, it's all there. And if you want more- <laughs> Cossacks. Oh, Cossacks. Yeah. If you if you want if you want more Cossacks, vampires, witches, and ghouls, you can go to patreon.com slash horrorvanguard.com. You get it. You know. Patreon plug goes here. You know, if you if you've heard the show at least once before, you know we try to jam it in there. I feel somehow. like people are gonna think we're losing there it is. energy when it comes to self-promotion. But <laughs> like I just the the Patreon plugs are funny sometimes, but I just really want to talk about this movie more. <laughs> yeah, if you like what we do. Please think about giving us some money to help us keep doing more of it. With that said, let us get into the discourse. And talk about this movie more, we shall. <laughs> so, uh, where um, do we want to start t- talking about this movie from a bit of a theoretical perspective? Uh, well, I kind of think that if we are going to call this a kind of horror movie, if we're, if we're going to kind of go against what the directors and screenwriters said, that, you know, this is a fairy t- it's a fairy tale. It's anthrop it's cultural anthropology. If we go, no, this is a horror movie, I think it's important to try and kind of think about what yeah. kind of horror movie we're dealing with. And so I, I you know, I think should we think about this as a folk horror film? And how does that how does that work in the context? You know, folk horror is often associated with uh English cinema of the sixties. How does that work in the context of, of Soviet cinema? And I think that brings up the, the the question of religion and religion in the Soviet Union specifically. I don't I don't know. What do you what do you both think about those two points? That this is a kind of folk horror movie, and what do you what do you think about the role of religion in this? Yeah, that, I'll let Ash go first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I, I think my approach to this really builds off my earlier comments about like Eastern Eastern European and Soviet folk cinema. Stuff like stuff like Sampo, Day the Earth Rose, uh, Jack Frost. Um, those are those are all like I only know these movies by their American titles. I should really <laughs> learn them by their proper titles. But um, a, a lot of these movies are concerned with like you know like these folkloric traditions used to be like at, at parts of them come from like you know pagan faith systems right and like pre Christian faith systems. So like there's naturally something there, there's a religious religiosity or religiousness happen here. There's something theological going on. So so I definitely think it, it it's kind of teasing at all, all of these different threads. And then like exactly Alex, as you line uh, like lay out in your book, there's like you know like you, you can see the cultural tensions and right the the kind of like slow decades long unraveling of the Soviet Union playing out through the emergence of horror in these films. Yeah, there's a there's a his I mean there's a historiographical consensus and one that like I do agree with and it's you know was primarily historicized I guess by the anthropologist Alexei Yurchek in in his book Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More mm-hmm. and the the argument essentially is that like the Soviet Union kind of just disappeared yeah like, we woke up one morning and the routines, the rituals of everyday life had become so monotonous and boring that when we woke up that morning and it was gone, we were all kind of like, all right, cool. And we just continued with mm-hmm. our with our lives uh, without the Soviet Union. Uh, just to put it really crudely, I'm sorry if Alexei Yurchek listened and I butchered <laughs> his argument, but that, that's, that's essentially what the argument is. And I do agree with that. I, I mean, the, the rituals of everyday life definitely... Um, uh, 
wore off on people. But I do think, and what I was trying to to show with these films is that fears and anxieties existed um, amongst the Soviet people for a long time. I mean, from the beginning of the Soviet period. But but like in V, and what I tried to show with V um, is that it's a lot of the party conservatives at the time who are afraid of this new, the, the emergence of consumer culture in the Soviet Union. Um, there's a turn after after Khrushchev. Khrushchev promises the Soviet people that they're going to turn Soviet industry uh, to consumerism to try to satisfy consumer needs and improve the living standards of the Soviet people. Now that we are the victorious uh, second superpower of the world, he doesn't really... Uh, make do on that promise because of political tensions and and other things that he gets caught up in. But Brezhnev does, and you see like the emergence of the automobile industry, uh, the the um, washers and dryers that come in everybody's houses, new commercials, and uh, you know Soviet national industries promoting these consumer goods that I think is a is a one of the elements that this film is responding to and religion in this so that's one component so let's let's kind of put that on the side right now um there's consumerism the the emergence of consumerism there's also the fact that after stalinism in particular it's not necessarily a resurgence of religiosity or orthodoxy um as much as the 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 restrictions on it are loosened up um, and there's great work. My own advisor, Greg Fries, uh, has done some great work on showing that um, throughout the Soviet period, there is, of course, uh, um, a decrease in the amount of um, people that claim to be Orthodox Christians or Lutherans or Catholics or whatever in Soviet space. But what instead of a, a secularization of faith, what actually happens is people's faith just remains at home. Right. Instead of going to church to to practice their faith in a community, they it just becomes home based. Mm-hmm. So people still have icons in their house. And right next to the portrait of uh, Lenin might be a, an icon of St. Nicholas, for example. And that wasn't that wasn't anything strange necessarily in the Soviet Union. Um, so religious imagery is is has always been a part of uh, Russian, Ukrainian in particular. Uh, culture, something that, you know, zooming in on the the icon of Jesus, the contemptuous face of Jesus in V is something that every Soviet citizen knew what it meant um, and and knew what it was trying to convey, a form of montage. So you have this kind of, uh, I don't want to call it a a resurgence of religiosity, but just a kind of a recognition that it's never really gone anywhere. Uh, It's always been here. and, And now we can be okay with it. We could be open with it. Um, so we have the consumer part and the religious part. And so what I think the film is doing, in my opinion, and what some of the writers uh, uh, commented about is, is to use this religious uh, imagery as a sort of metaphor for, I don't want to call it state surveillance, but just an acknowledgement that with this emergence of the new consumerism, with the possibility of getting new automobiles and and having all these goods, there's a risk of uh, uh, declining into bourgeois decadence, right? And the state 
especially the the party conservatives do not want that to happen whatsoever and so in the in the party journal communist which is the the theolet the the theoretical journal of the communist party at the time there's so many debates going on about how do we encourage this new form of consumerism without it degrading into uh, gluttony right how do we how do we encourage communist soviet people to buy things to improve their living standard to buy cars to 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 buy washing machines and dryers and yada yada how do we do that without encouraging a new gluttonous society and i think that that's what this film is subtly getting at is that you know gluttony whether one degrades into gluttony depends a lot on one's own um uh position i guess and so homa is this character that like you know he drinks he he loves the tobacco um and he can't stay away from it even though he knows that he's in a sacred place where he's not supposed to be doing these things he does it anyway right against his own against his own best wishes and there's a scene you know right in the beginning where they go into the witch's house and she says i don't have any food for you and he makes her a promise like we're not going to eat your food and you know what does he do mm-hmm. he, he steals the food and eats it and there's the there's the i think it's the first first evening first night that he's uh, in the church and he's there going oh well, it's not going to be that bad if i take some snuff you know it'll be fine what what's <laughs> what's the worst that could happen which I think right. totally chimes with what you're saying. Yeah, and he yeah, he experiences absolutely. the worst. But at the same time, there is also this, you know, if we if we kind of look at it now, for or for viewers who are maybe not that familiar with the kind of historical context of the film's production, in, in some ways you do have a classic folk horror story, right? You have someone who's supposedly oh, yeah. uh, educated, coming from the kind of sophisticated modernity, going out into into the rural countryside and encountering kind of different forms of knowledge, which their own kind of epistemology can't account for. I mean, this is, it's a very, it's, it's a super classic folk horror mm. uh, story. And I think the role of religion is is really interesting. I think you're right, the the kind of, um, the nature of religion in, in Soviet society is uh, often very complex and kind of poorly, under, poorly understood, but it's about, if we think about it in the kind of broadest possible terms, it's about the space in thought for the not strictly material, uh, the kind of the role of ritual and enchantment, I think are very strong in this film. Um, mm. So I, I, in some ways, in yeah. some ways, I really, I, I really do like the reading that you put forward, but in some ways, again, you kind of look at it and you go, yeah, this is, this is a kind of classic, almost, almost a very straightforward folk horror story. So it has to involve religion because folk mm-hmm. horror is always about religious ways of knowing in some sense. Yeah. I, and I, and I think that the, you know, this, the, the party ideologues, the Soviet people in general, the, the, the party itself, they are aware of the, you know, dating all the way back to, to Marx and, and Lenin himself are aware of the, the, What's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to use the word policing, but the uh, it's not surveillance either. But the power of religion to kind of mm-hmm. regulate behavior, right? Um, that, that that people don't do bad things if they feel like 
they're being watched by God and that God is going to put judgment on them, which is why every time Choma does something bad inside the church, we get a few of, of Jesus watching him. <laughs> and I think that knowing that as, as the party does, you know, it's not, it's not subtly su- suggestive. It's very explicitly suggestive that like Jesus is the party. Mm-hmm. The party is Jesus. We, you know, we, we have our eyes on you, not in some kind of like punitive spy sense, not in some like, you know, quote unquote totalitarian sense, but like as a communist, you're supposed to be regulating your own behavior toward in the, in the process of building socialism, of building towards communism. And if you are sacrificing your own personal ethics, um, it reflects poorly on the party um, as a member of the party. And so in that sense, you know, the, the, the watchful eye of the party is is on you, um, but in a good way, I guess I want to say is what I'm getting at. Um, yeah, religion, religion has its purpose in that sense, because, again, you couldn't you couldn't just have religion in a film, even though it's a even though you can consider it folk horror, of course, it has to have religion. But in the Soviet sense, you couldn't mm-hmm. just have religion. It had to have some kind of bigger meaning. And there's been a lot of people that have tried to relate Marxism to a, 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 a religious worldview. And, and I think that the Soviets weren't necessarily against um, doing that sometimes in film mm-hmm. in particular, in literature uh, yeah, as I well. Mean, the, the, I think, honestly, this, this kind of film and so many other kind of bits of culture from the 20th century really do so much to get us away from the really kind of boring uh, uh, conversation of like, Oh, oh, any kind of Marxism or communism is fundamentally antithetical to religion. And the relationship between those two things is so much more complicated and so much more interesting than kind of like a simple Mm -hmm. opposition. Um, You know, Jameson has this great line where uh, in Marxism and form where he says that like, if the criticism about uh, communism just being a kind of religion is true, then all, all religion is uncomfortably close to communism. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, it, it cuts it. It co- cuts yeah. both ways, right? In in some ways, mm-hmm. in some ways, there is huge amounts of right. kind of like imaginative, cultural, ritualistic overlap between these things. And I think those those cuts and those close ups to the icons, the real tight close ups on the face of Christ, are incredibly important to kind of figuring out the kind of allegorical level of meaning that's happening in this film. Yeah, I think that that's really well put. Um, perfectly put. Uh, I agree. Um, you know, another important context to keep in mind for this film, um, which I, I think I talk about in the chapter, uh, is the context of uh, Brezhnev's little deal. So the quote unquote little deal, which is um, political loyalty in exchange for relaxed cultural policing and market uh, sensibilities, I guess that like, you, you know, the, the, the Soviet union, the leaders of the party knew that there was a black market going on, um, at the time. And they knew that countercultures like the Stilyagi were emerging. Um, and they had hard, they had had a hard time policing countercultures in the early sixties and in the late fifties. But by the, by the middle of the 1960s, they sort of they concede and they say, okay, you can have these things, but in exchange, we want political loyalty and stability. Stability of cadres is, is the, the Brezhnev thinking. And so, you know, that speaks again 
to this idea of religion uh, in in Christ in the film, serving as this um, the symbol of of uh, making sure that political loyalty is going on, that it's yeah, actually happening. Absolutely, and I think this brings up our our main triptych. Uh, our, our, the th- our three three guys on spring break. Uh, we we have the we have the the orator or the rhetorician. We have the theologian, and we have our main character, the philosopher. Um, what what do we think about this tri- that about this triad about this the these three figures and the film's focus on philosophy? I love it. I love I love so much how this film treats Homa and everything about him, um, on, and on so many levels too. Not not just in like a you know like as an academic, there's there, there's nothing more that there's no more perverse joy for me than the mocking of academia. One thing I love about him is he's deeply humanizing. Um, I'll never forget my my first few experiences doing like graduate level. Uh, like giving presentations, delivering papers, working with other academics. And as someone who came from a working poor background with no ties to higher education, I was expecting wealthy people, buttoned up collars, just being appropriate all the time. And what I encountered was the most flagrant and shocking and open drug use I have ever encountered in my life. (laughs) And like, like just, just people at the top of their academic game, you know, de- delivering papers and me knowing that they have a pocket full of snuff, um, you know, metaphorically speaking, of course. Um, and there's something deeply humanizing about Homer's character, right? You know, he's, you know, like these academics locked mm. away in their ivory towers are, are often depicted as, as being something more refined than the average human. But we're not. We're just, we're just people riddled with all of the same foibles and flaws as others just workers all the same. And I, I think this movie, his character specifically really levels that. And I also like, and I don't know what to make of this more broadly because I just don't know enough about Soviet and Eastern European folk traditions, but like, like Homa is kind of a stock character. Um, Cause I'm, I'm thinking of like, like a lot of like the fantasy folkloric sword and sorcery stuff, like the, the protagonist from uh, the day the earth froze and the protagonist from uh, Jack Frost they're both very similar. They're both like a, a little arrogant, very boastful, very self-certain, certainly very skilled and competent uh, despite that. Like, you know, like uh, like Homa is able to like, mm-hmm. he, he, he clearly has all of the skills and knowledge to defeat this witch and these demons. Even though he ultimately fails at the task, he knows what to do in the situation. He's incredibly talented and skilled. Um, but nevertheless, like, you know, his own self-certainty is what gets the better of him, right? You know, he hears that, final like rooster crow and then he thinks he's safe he's too certain in his skill and i don't know this is just kind of rambling at this point but those are just some thoughts i have on our our uh our our main our main spring breaker i like the the image of three guys on spring break (laughs) it's a good one uh i you know yeah i sort of i treat him as the sort of byronic anti-hero right the the superfluous man um uh, in Gogol's in Gogol's time, right? That's cert- that's definitely a, a, a character uh, uh, frame to have. You, you know, the the famous one in Russian tradition being uh, Lermontov's Pichorin, who is who's you know the the hero of our time is the name of that novel. But 
these are people who, as you said, are extremely confident in, in themselves and in their own convictions, uh, kind of, well, I guess not kind of, but almost explicitly narcissistic. Um, and I think in Gogol's story, that's what the philosopher in particular is supposed to represent. Now, the, uh, the rhetorician and the theologian, we don't really get a lot of them uh, in the story or in the, in the film as well. They're characters in the beginning, but then they kind of, they're not there anymore. Um, and the, and in the film, you, you get kind of the, the philosophical background of Homa is put on you very strongly in the beginning, right? Because there's that scene, I don't know if you remember, but the night that he's getting drunk with the Cossacks on his way to the village where, uh, one of the Cossacks asks him, what are you learning in those books? What's in those books that you read? And Homa doesn't have an answer for him because he's too drunk. He can't think. And and the, the Cossack says something like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go to school and read those books and I'm going to become. Yeah. A right. And so <laughs> it's a great scene. It's a it's an amazing drunk uh, depiction of being absolutely hammered on on vodka and and uh, moonshine in Russia. Um, but, uh, it's, it's philosophy itself, I think for Gogol, uh, which as, as I believe Ash said, I, uh, um, is, is a representation of these learned figures, um, in our contemporary time, as you said, it's sort of the, the ivory tower academics and in Gogol's own time, it's, uh, the people who are going to, to these seminaries and learning philosophy in particular, who are then leaving the seminary and applying philosophy to everyday life in such a way that they no longer believe in anything. Um, and, you know, if you, if you take a philosophy class, even today, your philosophy teacher, professor, whoever will tell you that you're going to encounter a lot of thoughts and ideas um, that are super interesting and tantalizing, but do not let it become something yeah. that dictates your life. Um, don't let it become something that, you know, challenges mm -hmm. your sense of, of self, your sense of, I don't know, family and political ideas and yada, yada. These are, to a certain extent, just interesting thought experiments, right? We can talk about, I don't know, uh, uh, Kant's thing, thing in and of itself without dedicating our life to um, figuring out what that thing is. Um, and I think that that's what Gogol is sort of getting at in the story. In some ways, what you're saying kind of um, has echoes of like uh, Ivan Turgenev and and fathers and sons. You know, this mm -hmm. idea of this conflict between, uh, you know, a generation that has stayed in a kind of more rural agricultural setting, colliding with a younger generation that's gone off to become educated and has come back as this kind of like romantic nihilist who doesn't really believe in anything anymore, or who doesn't who doesn't derive meaning from the same sources. And I think in this, what's so striking is that early scene with the Cossacks just drives home the fact that philosophy is that which cannot be articulated. Mm. Uh, and on a on a on an immediate level, it can't be articulated because you're just too drunk. <laughs> but 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 on a kind of bigger meta level, when you actually encounter the supernatural, thought collapses. What is it uh, that he ends up doing? He ends up reciting scripture. Mm. He 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 right. is he is the philosopher who turns into not even a theologian. He just turns into a preacher, yeah. right? He right. he's not making he's not doing like disputations. He's just he's just uh, kind of orating. He's just pre he's just preaching his 
the sermon through throughout the night in order to kind of try and survive so it's like philosophy is this kind of like uh you know it's this kind of bar ultimately barred subject right it's the thing which both kind of identifies you as a subject apart but also leaves you almost completely unable to sort of speak mm. in psychoanalytic terms right you you there's nothing that you can say you know what's in the books uh, i can't <laughs> i can't tell you uh again uh, that's because i've gotten absolutely smashed on on vodka but but also because i don't actually have the language anymore that would allow me to bridge that epistemological gap that existential gap that now exists yeah right and so as a result you have a character that's completely unequipped to deal with something which is decidedly non-philosophical mm-hmm. oh, that's such a good point yeah i I think that that relate. I mean, we can relate that to today. Um, you know, if you meet somebody who has no idea, never heard of Karl Marx in their life, and they just ask, "What is socialism?" Sort of like, "Where the hell do I start?" You know, like you don't know, you don't know how to get into it because you're like, "I don't know what you know." You know, like I don't know where to start with that, with answering that. But it's sort of the, but it, the the. Homa's belief that he has it all figured out, but yet he doesn't because he can't engage with these Cossacks in any, in any meaningful sense um, with what he's learning in the seminary. He just kind of, you know, uh, uh, uses the drunkenness, I guess, as the <laughs> excuse to not engage. Um, so I think that that's a, a, an interesting point. And yeah, I mean, again, Gogol's, purpose uh in saying that philosophy is not something that you necessarily live by um and it's not something that should uh in, endow the, the the person the philosopher with a supreme sense of themselves um that and i and i think that's part of the folkloric aspect of this is that you know in gogol's time god but in in the soviet period um uh I guess it would be the state or or the the bigger communist idea is something that will humble you, mm-hmm. and like this you can see this because what of what of our what are what our what are our protagonists' principal concerns right uh, a thousand lashes or a thousand pieces of gold, mm-hmm. yep right like that's you know he, t- he turns up the the lord of the manor the father says you got to say prayers over the over the over the remains of my daughter for three nights. He's like, and if you, if you, you know, he goes, firstly, he runs back to the seminary uh, and the priest in charge of the seminary says, you've got to go and go and see this rich guy. Otherwise, we're going to beat you. Mm-hmm. I will do it publicly. He gets there and he's like, I'm going to leave this place because this sounds terrible. And, <laughs> and she's a witch. He goes, no, you've got to stay. Otherwise, we're going to beat you. And it's like, there's so much, there's so much anxiety around the status of the body, right? For, for a philosopher, mm-hmm. this is like, all of the concerns are so like immediate and at hand and all that philosophy just seems so kind of like totally remote. Yeah. Yeah. He's trapped, right? Oh, totally. This like, so, I mean, like, I think for me, this kind of like brings two things to mind. And like, when I think of like weirdly this last time watching it, uh, the, the Cossack guy with the cool haircut, um, when, when he's asking him to like, oh, like when he's like joking about him becoming a philosopher and, and learning all this stuff and they're they're kind of making fun (laughs) of, uh, Homa, I uh, I was thinking about Big Bill Haywood, an early American labor organizer, um, who had, had has mm-hmm. a quote that's all it's stuck with me for years now. But um, 
someone once asked him if he had read Marx's Capital and he knew the theory and his response was, I have never read Marx's Capital, but I have the marks of capital all over my body. And, and kind mm. of like, you know, I think part of part of the academic critique that's kind of emerging here is like a critique of like the kind of unlearning and de-skilling that happens with academia. You know, like you, you have yeah. to go unlearn so many things that you already know full well, like in, in the case of Homa, like sleep with the damn witch. I'm sorry, but if a witch is coming on to you, you sleep with the witch. Like, them, them's the rules. I don't know why he <laughs> failed the test on this one. But, like, and on yeah. top of that, too, like, all of his fear of bodily damage and degradation and of being whipped and beaten, like, it comes from the fact that that his response to the encounter of, in this case, like, a, the feminine other was to beat her, in, in this case, fatally. Right which ties into, I think, a lot of the things you say in the later half of your book about the kind of like late Soviet Union's failure to address the needs of women as workers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that scene where, where the, the, the witch is approaching him when he's in the barn is frightening. Mm -hmm. It's like it's such a scary but easy scene. You know, it's like there, there's no gra heavy yeah. graphics that are in that. There's, there's makeup, and that's really it. And it's so scary. And like his reaction is exactly what you would say if it were you like no 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 <laughs> granny i'm not interested in you like <laughs> it's it's really great um the yeah you you also brought up the the cossacks which i think are are you know besides that scene where they say that they want to be philosophers there's um the scenes there's multiple scenes where homa is trying to leave oh, yeah. he's just trying to book it as fast as he can whenever he can and you there there's uh certain cossacks certain members who you know, you can tell that they empathize with him and they know something's up mm -hmm. right they they sense that something's going on that this girl isn't normal <laughs> but they're they're fulfilling their duty right they're doing what they have to do um regardless of of what's going to happen to homer they're just doing what they have to do and i and i think that their that character uh uh that characteristic is also an important contrast to to Homa, who is trying to evade responsibility. You have the Cossacks who are who are doing it, and there's even that one scene where they're sitting with him at dinner and they ask him uh, where he says something. He he tells them it's after the second night, I think. He tells them this girl's a witch. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go in the church anymore. That's why I'm trying to leave. Um, and they tell him the story of these two other guys that that got a similar fate as him. Um, but they say it's all hearsay. We don't know if it's true. We don't know if it actually happened, but this one guy, um, I forget what the story is now, but it's something like he was an amazing hunter and fisherman. Yeah. He was a hunter who fell in love with her. He was an amazing hunter who would go out every night and he would just, you know, he would kill it on the hunting fields and he wouldn't share anything that he got with anyone. And he was in love with this girl and, you know, he turned up, missing or dead one day and they don't there's no like other context behind this guy but you know that you know he's also a victim of not only uh the witch but this this form of gluttony that that uh is that coma is being uh warned against yeah there's a moment where they do seem incredibly sympathetic because i think it's after the first night uh and uh like a bunch of them are like going like so we had a bunch of like really weird shit <laughs> happening overnight what what's the deal with that and the woman is just like 
yeah, it's just noises. It's fine. Yeah. Don't worry about it. I don't want to talk about it. And it's like, you know, they're trying to kind of like reach out here and like, but he's, he's, he's again, this kind of very isolated figure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And even though, you know, in the classic folk horror setup, the community is generally seen as hostile in this, they're not hostile at all. They're, they, they, they kind of like, there's the, there's the weird moment where he comes out and insists on kind of dancing and everyone's like, oh, okay, bit weird, but whatever. And so like they generally, the community is like super not is not hostile in the, in the sense of like like the community on Summer Isle in the yeah. Wicker Man is for example there's there's actually some there's the possibility of like bridge being built if yeah. if your main character can kind of like take themselves out of themselves right to kind of like transcend right. their own limitations but he's like he's just incapable of doing it yeah that's that's the dancing scene mm-hmm. yeah you you're absolutely right to bring that up because the dancing scene is a paradox itself. It's the scene in which he clearly snaps, oh, yeah. right? H- himself, as a guarded, as his own guarded philosophical self, he snaps. Uh, and he just starts dancing. He starts ripping it up. <laughs> and he's letting his guard down for the first time. And that means that all the people around him are looking on. They're like, hell yeah, dude, break it down. Like, they're they're finally leveling with him for the first time. And he, meanwhile, is losing it, you know? Yeah, I, I always read that yeah, like there's something kind of heartbreaking about it, isn't there? There's something yeah. kind of heartbreaking about that scene. When, when he when he pulls his hat off and they all see that his hair's gone gray, like like the, the, there's the, yeah. there's a reaction of one of the women in the village, and she's just like it's like a legitimate look of shock at what she's seeing. Academia, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I did read like like so like John, I really liked your point about how the village is like oddly sympathetic towards him given the full horror context and and mm-hmm. for me while watching this i kind of see that as like and maybe this is like d- dutiful mid-soviet propaganda but like the rich the rich man who kind of owns the village for lack of a better phrasing and the rector who kind of owns the seminary for again lack of a better phrasing kind of kind of view them as the bad guys them as like the hostile village in in a certain sense because like yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the 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 Cossack bodyguard dudes who would be the ones beating the hell out of Homa if he tried to escape. Like, I'm I'm sure decades ago in their lives, they like the the rich landowner used horrible violence to cajole them into their current position. So there's there is still kind of that element of the, the this kind of outside violent force that's keeping people in line. Yeah, I think um, that's a great point too. The the two uh, other major male characters. There's the the leader of the seminary who clearly is the person that like has hardened Homa, mm-hmm. has made him cold, right? Has has turned him into the philosophical yeah. robot that that he is. And then there's uh, the classic patriarch, mm-hmm. right? The the father of the daughter. Which like remember what I said in the beginning. He, he originally he was there was supposed to be some um, sexual. Yeah. Uh, 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 connotations, I guess, behind him, or, or a sexual role, and an implication that he had um, done something to his daughter, right? To to turn her um, towards witchcraft. They took that out, but you can still see, as you said, that he he plays the main patriarchal role as the wealthy um, property owner in the town. And um, just having a quick look at how long we've been going for. Any final, any any additional thoughts that people want to bring up? 
No, we 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 had a good conversation. I think we talked a lot about a lot. This, is, this has this has been a really good one. You know, like listeners, if you haven't seen if you haven't seen this film, please go watch it. It is it is fantastic. And um, so I, I, just, I, oh, think, I, I was just gonna say I, I believe I saw it on Shutter. Yeah, oh, yeah nice. you can find oh, it on yeah. Shutter. So you can find it there. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'm um, Severin. Also, I have the Severin DVD release, and it comes packed with all kinds of bonus features. If that's your thing, like it is for me. Don't watch the new version. Don't watch the 2000. I think it's like 2016 or 14. Don't watch that garbage. It's really bad. It's really, really bad. So as we're on our way out, Alex, if you want to give one quick final plug for the book and where our listeners can catch up with you online. Cool. Uh, so the book is called Fear Before the Fall, uh, Horror Films in the Late Soviet Union. It's from Zero Books. It's out in the United States now. It's pretty short. It's uh, like 140 pages. I didn't want it to be an academic S monograph. I just wanted it to be a brief introduction mm -hmm. to to the everyday reader to soviet horror films to let people know that hey the soviet union actually had horror films um and you know what what they meant um you can i guess you can pick it up anywhere that you get books or you can just go on the zero books website mm -hmm. or page um i you can follow me on twitter at a at alex t herbert or or alex thurbert whatever <laughs> um or on Instagram, where I'm much more active, and that is at punks around P U N K S A R O U N D. Um, and also, if if you have it in you, try to find uh, Red Ink, which is the community library that I run. Like I said, if there's any musicians or poets or or authors listening, you want to do an event in Providence, Rhode Island, hit up Red Ink, and we will gladly host you. Amazing. And links links to the book, links to the socials, all this good stuff are going to be in the show notes for today's episode. Uh, thanks, thanks, Alex, so much for one, writing this book and two, coming onto our show to talk about this movie. It's been fantastic. Uh, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll uh, uh, st oh, stay spooky. Uh, see you around. Uh, folk horror joke goes here. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week. Stay spooky.